Did you find your seats? Go ahead and track down a copy of God's Word and begin the process of trying to find Habakkuk. Be in Habakkuk chapter 3 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be uh, one underneath the chair somewhere uh, around you. If not, we apologize. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 3. No shame in using the table of contents to to find that. Uh, as always, um, if you need a copy of God's Word or know someone who does, uh, those chairs, uh, those Bibles in the chairs are our gift to you. We'd love for you to have it. We will not tackle you at the door if we see you walking out with one. All right, so um, we've come to the end of our journey uh, in the book of Habakkuk. If you are a guest, welcome, uh, or a member who's just not been here over the past few weeks. Uh, this is the fourth and final week uh, in Habakkuk. Uh, don't worry, hopefully you will not be lost if you've missed the previous three sermons. There's still a ton uh, for you uh, today, as well as just a reminder of things that we've covered. Uh, but you can you can go back and listen to that on our website if you want to get more uh, on the book of Habakkuk. I've been convinced during our time that um, in this book that the message of Habakkuk, if we were to grasp it, uh, to to grab a hold of it, to hold on to it, to apply it rightly, it would it would transform the way we walk in this world. Uh, it would change the way we walk in this world uh, as uh, Christians because this. A little short book is is profound in so many ways and answers some of the most profound questions in life. Doesn't tell us everything we need to know. Okay, we've got the rest of the word for that, but it instructs and equips us in ways that are beyond beneficial, in ways that are beyond what we think a three chapter uh, book might do. Um, I've mentioned this before, but I've heard numerous pastors, more seasoned, more mature than I am, say without hesitation that one of the best things that you could do. Uh, for your people is 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 prepare them to suffer, teach them how to suffer well based on God's word or prepare them for difficulty, uh, because one of the undeniable realities of life in a fallen world is that difficulty will come to in varying degrees at varying times. If you've lived long enough, uh, then then you know that uh, to be true. Uh, well, Habakkuk might be one of the closest things we have to what I'll call a condensed how to manual. When confronted with difficulty or suffering or confusion or anything of the like, um, Habakkuk not only gives us the truth so that we would be equipped to walk through difficulty, Habakkuk sets the example of how to apply these truths. That's one of the unique features of this book that we have gotten to witness Habakkuk's personal journey that he takes from chapter one to chapter three. He, chapter three, he's on this journey from from fear to faith, from worry to worship, from petition to praise. So we not only get the truths, we see them worked out in the lives of the prophet uh, himself. So he sets the example. Um, and I don't know about you. Uh, I can hear truths all the time, but but examples really help uh, in sort of cementing what that that looks like. So if you've ever asked the question to kind of back up and think about this book as a whole, if you've ever asked the question in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship in life, in the midst of circumstances that are just generally difficult, if you've ever asked, why is this happening? And to add to that, why is this happening and where is God while it's happening? Why is he not doing anything? Why is he not responding if Questions like that have ever come to your mind or been voiced by you, then Habakkuk has a ton to say to you. Because these are the very questions that he himself was asking, and these are the very questions that God 
responds to. And again, we not only get to hear truths regarding this, we get to see the application of them. So the journey must end today, but I I pray the impact of the journey will last uh, much longer. So uh, before we read uh, all of chapter three, let's uh, do a quick uh, recap of how we got to where we are. Let's remind each other or maybe instruct one another about how we got to this point in terms of when Habakkuk is writing. Okay. by the way, if you've listened to a lot of British sermons, I've said this all along, it's Habakkuk. But I'm going with Habakkuk, so whichever you prefer. So if I'm saying that and it bothers you, get over it and just move on in the sermon. But if you get to the, this point in history when he's writing, the uh, God's Old Testament people, people are not in the best situation. Uh, you had the height of the kingdom of God's Old Testament people with two guys named David and Solomon. You've probably heard of them. It went south after that, largely due to some decisions those guys made and some leaders that came after them. But at one point, you ended up with two separate kingdoms. So one kingdom split into two, one in the north, one in the south. By the time we turn the pages to Habakkuk, the northern kingdom has already been sacked by the Assyrians. Okay, so they're, they're gone, they're exiled, uh, that kingdom's over. The southern kingdom, known as Judah, uh, got to hang on a little bit longer. But they're pretty weak, they're very small, living in the context of a few superpowers around them with another emerging superpower that we hear about. There was the, the reason they got to hang on a little longer is uh, God raised up a leader named Josiah and there was a bit of a revival or a reformation that happened during his time. So he kind of brought him back to the Lord, corrected a lot of things. But Josiah was killed in battle. And as I've mentioned along the way, the common theme in the Bible of good kings have bad kids uh, that continues. And so the heir apparent comes in, kind of wrecks things and they go south pretty quick in Judah. And when you get to chapter one of Habakkuk, you can tell there's just moral chaos. It's absolute moral chaos in the land. Habakkuk describes the culture using these words in chapter one. Violence, iniquity, wrong, destruction, strife, contention. The court system is in shambles. Justice is being perverted. Just chaos from a societal standpoint. And what we have at the beginning of the book is Habakkuk questioning, complaining to God, biblically speaking, about why are you not listening? Why is this happening? Why are you not doing things? He's actually asking God to judge his own people. God, why are you not judging your own people for what you are seeing here? He's looking at the landscape of his own people and complaining about God, why why God's not bringing judgment. And apparently he's been complaining for a while because he says, how long, O Lord? How long will I cry and you not listen? But God finally responds, as we saw, but he does not respond in a way that Habakkuk was expecting. God lets Habakkuk know, I'm going to take care of the situation, but I'm going to do it through some unusual and shocking means. He tells the prophet that he's in the process of raising up another nation to judge his own people. We learn that God's going to use the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, one of the most ruthless nations to ever exist, to judge his own People to punish his own people. To that answer, okay, in response to that answer from God, we get a second complaint, an understandable complaint from Habakkuk, and it goes something like this. What? You sure? I mean, I know we're bad, but they're much worse. How are you going to use, going to use a, a more wicked nation to judge a, a less wicked nation? 
And if you are going to use a more wicked nation to judge a less wicked nation, then are you going to judge them as well? Are they going to get what they deserve or is it just going to fall on us? To which God responds to the second complaint. Yes, they'll get theirs in due time. Just wait and see. Basically, he says the prideful will fall and the righteous, only the righteous will live by faith. Kind of sets up this dichotomy that we unpacked two weeks ago. And then God goes into great detail after that, unpacking why the Babylonians are going to get judged. He just unpacks their pride and their evil and in really specific ways and then how he's going to sort of bring about his justice on that. God makes clear through his second response that he remains in charge, that justice will prevail, that his purposes will win. It may not happen in our timing or in our preferred way, but but he tells Habakkuk, wait for it. It's it's it will surely come. And it's on the heels of that revelation from God okay, about I'm going to judge them as well. And here are all the reasons it's on the heels of that revelation that we get the final response from Habakkuk, which is all of chapter three. All right. So structure of the book, prophet complains, God responds, prophet complains about the response. God complains again. Now the prophet's going to respond one more time, but it's not complaint. It's going to be praise. It's going to be worship here at the end. Chapter three of this book is unique, even within the context of the book. It's actually a song. You have all of these musical references. So you're I'm not going to read some of the references as we go. But even this obscure word that I'm about to read, Shagayanoth, at the beginning is said to be a, a musical reference. And then you have several Selahs that you see in the Psalms. You have that in here. And then instructions at the end to the choir master. Okay. So there is a song here. Uh, in 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 the end, and we'll we'll talk more about it. So Habakkuk offers his final response, and it's in the context of a song in worship. More so, a re- he's recording a song for God's people and how they would respond. I would say he's actually giving God's people a liturgy that they could utilize in the midst of suffering. Meaning, he's giving them a form or a pattern of response, a pattern of worship. How do you respond when things go south? This is where I want you to see that even before we read this, this chapter in the context of this book is such a practical tool. This is a pattern for God's people for all time, for any time to know how to respond to suffering, to pain, to confusion, to difficulty, to questions. This is a liturgy, a response, a pattern of that. In many ways, this is a model of renewing and maintaining hope in the midst of suffering. So in a certain way, this chapter is all application. It's an incredible tool if you understand how it works. All right, that's enough setup. Let's read the text, dive in. All of chapter 3, starting in verse 1, this is the word of God. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shagayanoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands and there and there he veiled his power. 
Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations and the eternal mountains were scattered and the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses or your chariots of salvation... You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted up its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrow as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the field yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Okay. You read that in your quiet time. You try to figure out something to pray. Because the details are. Yeah. There's a lot there. So uh, there's a lot. Particularly in the middle of the text. And kind of the meat of the text. that, That could cause you to feel a little bit lost. And there are no unimportant details in this text. Because God doesn't waste words in scripture. But. I think the general framework is clear, or at least I think we can find it clearly. And that's what I want to hit on. Okay, not going to be able to dive into every one of these details, particularly in the middle of the text. Uh, but Lord willing, we'll get the gist of what's going on and we'll see the framework of what Habakkuk is helping us to see or what the Lord is trying to help us to see uh, through Habakkuk. So I want to emphasize this idea of this being a liturgy. A pattern for worship, a pattern for response. It's a it's a guide, okay, to how we should worship, provided providing a structure and content. So that's kind of what liturgy is. There's a structure to it and there's content in it. Okay? There's a liturgy to our gathering every Sunday. You've been here long enough, you may you may notice it. It's in the background. It's not as if there's just a word out front as we're doing this right now, okay? We're adoring God and then we're confessing sin. And so we move through this framework that informs what we're doing, that content fits into that framework. That's a liturgy. Chapter three, you might say, is a liturgy for when you don't feel like responding, okay? When you don't feel like worshiping. As one pastor said, it's a liturgy for when you are barely holding on. This chapter is steps on the floor in the dance studio, okay, for those that can't dance. Okay, just follow the steps and you'll know how to dance. It's a guide, a lead, a format, a plan, however you want to frame it. When life seemingly falls apart, doesn't make sense, or is just generally hard, what do you do? How do you respond? 
Here are four interconnected steps we see Habakkuk take here. And I emphasize interconnected. You cannot take just one of these in isolation. You do all four. They're locked together. They're links in a chain. Okay? They're four steps in a dance. It is, it is not a dance if you don't take all four steps. It is a, a step. That's it. Okay? So we're, we're, we want to dance with this. So let me go ahead and give them to you and they'll be on the screen. This is our outline for today. Just four points. That are framed like four exhortations or or a four part sort of circular process. It's all connected. First, we see Habakkuk pray desperately. Then he recollects biblically. Then he awaits fearfully and he rejoices faithfully. And it follows the order of the text. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll get that as we go. So what's the liturgy to follow when life goes south and doesn't make sense? Pray, recollect, await, rejoice. All right. Simple enough. Let's hit them one at a time. First, let's see Habakkuk pray desperately. This is verses one and two. This is verses one and two. Only two. Only verse two in this book is framed like a petition. Habakkuk starts off saying he's heard the report of God and God's work. And what's his posture in light of that in the middle of verse two? Fear. Okay. Just note that's how that's his posture after hearing God's work and and a report of his work. It's, he's fearful, and that's not a bad place to be biblically speaking. Okay, fear is the beginning of wisdom. So Habakkuk's actually in a good place, being fearful at at seeing God's work and hearing about God's work. Okay. Then comes the actual petition. In the midst of the years, revive it, meaning revive your work that I was just talking about. In the midst of your years, revive it. In the midst of your years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. That's the petition, threefold petition. Um, I, I rarely ever uh, recommend, I don't ever recommend the message as a form of the Bible. Uh, if you want to read it as sort of a commentary sometimes, uh, kind of more in our language or a paraphrase of what the Bible is saying, sometimes it can be helpful. I think it's actually helpful here. This is how the message puts this or paraphrases this. God, I've heard what our ancestors say about you and I've stopped in my tracks down on my knees. Do among us what you did among them. Work among us as you worked among them. And as you bring judgment, as you surely must remember your mercy. That's what he's saying. Three part petition. Praise for revival. Praise for revelation. And praise for remembering. Specifically that God would remember mercy in the midst of wrath. Revive your work. Make your work known. Remember your mercy. Do not treat us as our sins deserve. Because we don't deserve mercy. So please remember that you're merciful. One writer noted how it comes off as if. Uh, Habakkuk has broken out the picture album and he's flipping back through pictures of things that have happened before he came on the scene. He's looking over old pictures of how God worked in the past. He sees snapshots of how God responded and worked before. He says, God, I've seen the pictures. I've heard the stories now. Do do that again. I want to see you do that. Act like you did before. Yes, display your wrath. We deserve your wrath. The nations deserve your wrath. But remember, remember past times of mercy as well. You are a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Don't don't forget that part. You just imagine Habakkuk just keeps hitting that note louder and louder and louder. You know, what's really interesting here is what Habakkuk doesn't pray for. He doesn't pray for escape. Doesn't pray for things to get better. Doesn't pray for relief. Doesn't pray for more understanding. 
He's to the point he's heard from the Lord. He's praying now for the Lord's work to be done and his purposes to be fulfilled. In short, he's praying exactly what Jesus taught his disciples and taught us. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this pause right there. That doesn't mean we can't pray for escape or relief or more understanding. In certain ways, that's what Habakkuk has already prayed for that we looked at. But eventually God brings you on a journey to this point where no matter what the petition is, there's an overriding request that has to trump all of the petitions. Your will be done. God provide relief. Help me to understand. Heal. Do this. Move this. Make this happen. But ultimately your will be done. Habakkuk is showing us this that amidst. All the difficulty in life, his ultimate desire was that things be set right according to God's plan, not his own. He doesn't want things to be made comfortable according to his desires. He wants things to be set right according to God's plan. He wanted things to be the way God wanted them to be. Before it was ever recorded, Habakkuk is praying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. You just hear this. And forgive us, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The content of Habakkuk's prayer is crucial, but don't miss the simple fact that he's praying. That he's, that he's praying. He doesn't, he's, it's, it's a difficult situation to comprehend. He's already prayed. He's gotten a response from God. It's like he prayed and he was met with counsel from God's word. You know, some godly brother or sister came up and told him. And he's like, yes, I understand that's what God wants. And now he's returning. and He's praying some more. So don't miss the simple fact that he's praying. As Spurgeon said, whether or not we like it, asking is the rule of the kingdom. Asking is the rule of the king. Praying is the rule of the kingdom. Prayer is a privileged resource for the believer when things are not going well. So, first interconnected part of the liturgy, when life goes south and it doesn't make sense, pray desperately. Number two, recollect biblically. Remember, recall biblically. This encompasses the largest part of the text, verses 3 through 15. Okay, 3 through 15. So, in the context of Habakkuk praying, in the broader context of a song, you have in verses 3 through 15 what is commonly referred to as a theophany, which is a vision of God. So Habakkuk, is, he's been given a vision, a revelation of God that he's now put in the context of a song. And in the context of this liturgy, you have Habakkuk looking backwards, in a sense. He's given a revelation of God that's based on past events. For the sake of enduring the present and awaiting the future, he's looking to the past, to the character of God and the work of God. He's looking back. How This is how God responded to similar petitions in the past. He's looking back at what God did and he's saying, revive it. Make that known. Don't forget mercy again. What Habakkuk is doing here in the middle of the text, in the largest part of the text, is, I think, really the foundation of the liturgy. It's the glue that holds all of this together. What comes next, okay, awaiting fearfully and rejoicing faithfully, those are not possible without this. 
They are not possible without this. As one pastor said, Habakkuk and really all of God's people are strengthened in the present by looking to God's faithfulness in the past, which provides hope for the future. Okay, So you look to the past to find strength in the present and hope for the future. There's a lot here that Habakkuk is looking at. Most of it, okay, if you, if you have a familiarity with the Old Testament, particularly the book of Exodus, there might have been words in there or scenes in there that triggered memories for you of the Exodus, of God leading his people out of slavery in Egypt. And there's other stories brought in. Some of it, it's kind of hard to tell exactly if he, what event he might be referencing. We see the sun standing still. That takes you back to Joshua battling the Amorites. But there's just reminder after reminder here of what of what God has done, how he's acted in the past. He brought his people out of slavery, parted the Red Sea, brought plagues. He led them through the wilderness. He delivered them from enemy after enemy and then finally into the promised land. There are some massive themes here of the incomparable character of God. Okay, verse three starts by recalling the splendor. And glory and presence of God. Okay. God came. Okay. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Pern. He, he actually came, His presence, and He came in glory and splendor. Verses four through seven are calling God's power. He stood and measured the earth. Notice this. He looked, and what happened? The nation shook. Like every now and then, on a good day, I can look at one of my kids misbehaving and they, they, there's a little bit of trembling. But God looks and the nations shake. Power. You see references to his eternality, his unchangeableness, his immutability. The theological term there. End of verse 6. His were the everlasting ways. That's good to know right here for Habakkuk. He's recounting that God doesn't change. His ways are everlasting. You see emphasis on his wrath in verses 8 through 12. His salvation and mercy, verse 13. Go from the end of verse 13 through 15 and you have justice. God actually turns evil on itself. He uses their devices against them. I'm going to take your own arrows and I'm going to kill your soldiers with your own arrows. Perfect justice. Just pulling image after image, story after story to say, do you remember what that was like? Do you remember the stories that you've been told? You think about in our context, this is telling you as adults, do you remember Sunday school? You remember how God did this and that, all those stories that we we tried to make fun and give you a a coloring book and, and try to set it to memory and you had memory verses. Do you remember that? Do you remember that God is faithful? Recall all of that. It's built into you. That's that's what he's saying to his Old Testament people here. Stand on those. Stand on the character and work of God in the past. Remember the past and let it serve as an anchor for the present as you wait on the future. Just think about this in the context of the book here. So God has made clear he's going to punish sin in the camp. There's sin in the camp, in the camp of his own people, amongst his own people. He's going to use the Babylonians to do that. They're going to be his instrument. And then he's going to punish them. Justice may be perverted among God's people, but it's perfect among God. So he's going to, he's going to carry that out. So Habakkuk is bringing in the past 
to show how God has acted in this way before and that he can be trusted to carry this out. But he can also be trusted to have mercy on his people. Those that live by faith, he can be trusted to have mercy in wrath. Remember mercy. Remember that God acts for the salvation of his people. Verse 13. Here's a clear summary of the theophany. The purpose of the theophany, this is from one commentator, is to provide assurance that God would crush the head of the wicked and ultimately deliver his people. It's really not that complex. There's a lot of details that throw us off, but the purpose is to provide assurance that God will crush the wicked and he will deliver his people. This section exists here to make the point that God has never proven himself unfaithful at any point in any way at any time God has never been unfaithful as one writer said God is always faithful and we can stand today and step back from the most gross problem from the most unbelievable perplexity from the most confusing dilemma and we can say I don't understand the problem but I understand this God is faithful and he always has been and he always will be you know from from our vantage point in history, we have these same stories. Again, think, think Sunday school. We, if you grew up in the church, you have these stories sort of embedded in you. So we can still look back on those stories. But we have something to look back on that Habakkuk and God's Old Testament people really can only look forward to. And they weren't even 100% sure about what it was going to look like. Okay. They just had prophecies about what they could look forward to that we get to look back on with clarity. We, we have a, a cross to look back on. We have an empty grave. We have a resurrected and ascended Savior. We have the Acts of the Apostles. We have the letters to the churches. We have the book of Revelation. We have a couple of thousand years of church history to see God's faithfulness. I think in so many ways... This text, particularly verses 3 through 15, is a preach the gospel to yourself exhortation kind of text. This is a call to recollect how Christ died for the ungodly. How through the cross, death was swallowed up in victory. How there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How to die is gain and to live is Christ. This is a reminder of those truths. A reminder that the worst thing in this life is a momentary light affliction that's not worth comparing with the eternal weight of glory. This is a reminder how we've been caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a reminder of how we have an inheritance in heaven that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading and being kept for us. The Holy Spirit has sealed us for that, guaranteed that to happen. This, for us, is a call for us to recollect, to remember that all of us, every single person in this room, without exception, that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. Walking in the way we wanted to walk, living according to the desires that we have, the fleshly passionate desires, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And as a result of that, we were by nature, by nature, okay, born children of wrath like the rest of mankind, meaning 
we all deserve wrath. This is a call to remember that, to recollect that, but it's also a call to remember, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Okay, by grace, we have been saved is a call to remember that. To sum it up, it's a call to remember the gospel. In order to find strength in the present for us, we look to a cross in the past that gives us an anchor for the future. Let's just press pause there for just a second. So if you hear me say gospel, or if you hear words like cross and resurrection and grave and sin and wrath and dead, if that's foreign to you, confusing to you, causes any sort of question in you, you need to put a pin in that. We need to talk about it. You need to talk with somebody about it if it's not me, because we believe here that we're all broken. Every single one of us, we're broken. We've rebelled against God. And as a result, we are separated from God and dead without God. We have no hope in the world apart from God. But we also believe that God reconciled us, redeemed us through sending his son, through coming in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ to reconcile us. He sent his son to live the life we so want to live but can't. To die the death that we all deserve to die and then and then to rise from the dead, just certifying that everything he did was true and valid and sufficient. We believe that our only hope is through faith in everything that he did and not in anything that we can do. So broken people, we are we are not a perfect people. We're a rescued people. We are not a good work, save you kind of people. We are his work, saves us kind of people. So if any of that sparks a single question for you, put a pen there. Let's talk about it. Let's chase that down. Next part of the liturgy. What else do you do when life goes south? Doesn't make sense. Pray desperately. Recollect biblically. And third, await fearfully. Be transparent. This section bothers me. Um, this is just verse 16. You could reference other parts of the book. But verse 16 again. I hear. So I hear you, Lord. All that you've showed me is crystal clear. I've complained. You've responded. I get it. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Try and paraphrase that. So not the message paraphrase, the Corey paraphrase. Lord, I get what you are going to do using the Babylonians. I get that you're going to use them to crush us for our sins. Rightfully so. No argument for me. I get that you will eventually bring justice to them. Again, I have no argument uh, there, but it scares me to death. I'm sick to my stomach at the prospect of what is coming. I'm a mess. I can't stop uh, crying. My body actually hurts and I don't even feel like walking. Yet I'm going to wait quietly for you to do your thing. I'm going to wait on your justice. Do your work, God. You do you. You be you. And I'm just going to sit here and wait. I, I love where this book ends, where this chapter uh, ends. 
I'm great with where it ends. God is my strength. He gives me firmness in my steps, makes me tread on my high places. Like there's a, a foundation to stand on. He puts me on a foundation and I can, I can scat like the deer up the mountain. Okay. If you've ever watched that, that, that's the illusion. Okay. Just hopping up the rocks back and forth. Like you, that's where God puts you. But this part about the body tremors. And then the economic disaster that's going to come in verse uh, 17. That part bothers me. That's hard to swallow. I don't want to get clarity from God and be left trembling. But that, that's how it works. You study scripture. That's how it works. God speaks. And there should be f- some form of trembling in us. Isaiah 66 verse 2. This is the one of whom I look. This is God speaking through Isaiah. God, who do you look for? This. This is the one of whom I look. He is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. That's who God's looking for. What sort of response is God looking for to his word? A humble and contrite. It starts with humility. Remember, in chapter 2, okay, if you were here, God's going to crush the Babylonians because they are full of pride in themselves. Okay, The prideful will fall. God is not looking for those who exalt themselves and rest in their confidence. God is looking for humble, contrite, and trembling at his word. Habakkuk is essentially living out Isaiah 66 here. He is responding in humility to God's word. And he's resolved to wait patiently for God to act. That that phrase there, wait patiently, can mean to rest, to settle, to remain where you are. It's similar to the word used uh, to talk about resting on the Sabbath at the Ten Commandments or the same similar word used to talk about the rest that God's going to provide in the promised land for his people in the Old Testament. So Habakkuk is waiting patiently during difficult times. And what he's doing is he's he's in a sense laying back into God. He's he's sort of falling into the hammock of God. I'm going to rest and remain and settle in God because I don't know what else to do. I'm I'm trembling, I'm fearful, I'm shaking, I'm sick to my stomach. I'm just going to rest in God. What do you do when things go south and don't make sense? You wait patiently, even when you're afraid. You wait fearfully. That's not it. It's not where you remain. It's not all you do. You also pull this last lever in the liturgy. So pray desperately, recollect biblically, await fearfully, and finally you rejoice faithfully. Rejoice faithfully. So here, here's one of the paradoxes in Scripture. Suffering, trial, hardship in the background, literally people being judged for sins, nations crushing other nations, that nation going to be crushed, and then you have joy and rejoicing. Suffering and rejoicing. Trial, difficulty, and rejoicing. Certainly not the only place we see this, you know, Apostle Paul's like the poster child for this. Second Corinthians 6.10, Paul was saying he was what? We live as always sorrowful. We live as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We live as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And those things are just repeated over and over and over. So what's going on here? How do we make sense of an ending note of rejoicing given uh, the realities? First, note this. The circumstances have not changed. In fact, they probably have gotten worse or about to get worse. 
Okay, just just follow what Habakkuk is forecasting here in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the yields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. All right. I, I don't I know most of you fairly well. If you're a guest, I don't know you all that well, but I don't know of any farmers in here. Ranchers, people that make a living like your life is dependent on crops being raised up, sold, utilize those or the cattle or the sheep or the pigs or whatever it is. I don't I don't know. If you're a gardener, that doesn't count. Some of you are awesome gardeners. <laughs> you're not surviving off that garden. OK, just just note that I'm talking about people who make their livelihood. They will die without this stuff, communities that will die without this stuff. So given that most of all, most of us don't have that perspective, let me let me try to sum it up. Here's how one person put it. The loss of any of these in this context individually might be survived. Together, these combined in this context spell economic disaster and all devastating loss of hope. Loss of daily provision and loss of all economic strength. I'm like, it's it's. Stock market crashed. Okay, this is this is like even the gold you bought is no good. Crops failing, the market crash, social fabric has unraveled is what's being forecast. It would be difficult for things to get much worse is what I'm trying to say. So circumstances have not changed, forecasted to get worse. So what has changed? Habakkuk. He's changed. Now, just to press pause and, and, and emphasize this point about the circumstances here, because it just I couldn't get past verse 17 as I'm studying this week and couldn't get my head around. What would that be like to live through that? Because that happened. Historically, it happens. Even if you don't believe the Bible. OK, you got history outside of this. Babylonians crushed a lot of people. And this is what it would have looked like. So just. I just want to press on this. This this liturgy, these truths, these levers, they can be pulled during any difficulty, anything you're walking through, anything that confuses you, any hardship you may have, marriage on the rocks, kids gone wayward, cancer has surprised, death of a loved one, war, pandemic, injustice, economic collapse, and the list goes on and on. The list could go on forever. These this could be applied and should be applied to any of those situations but i just i feel like we've we've got to note how absolutely devastating this situation is i don't think anyone in this room can get their mind around what this situation would be like i was thinking this week that there's there's maybe some ukrainian christians maybe in the east of ukraine right now that are going they read this and they go i get it i i I get this But I have a hard time getting my head around this level of suffering. I've only read about this level of suffering. And I I push that not for the sake of downplaying any other what you may call lesser difficulty. I'm actually pushing this or putting emphasis on this because if he can rejoice, if rejoicing is possible in this situation then it is certainly possible in seemingly lesser difficulties. So think about that. He is rejoicing in a situation and a circumstance that we can't even get our heads around. 
If it's possible there, it's possible in whatever you're walking through. Okay, that, that's my point in trying to push that. Now, what we want to try to be as clear as we can be on is what it means to rejoice. That's a tough one. Because our default goes to happiness, right? As I'm smiling, things are great, and no matter what difficulty is going on, I just kind of got to have this demeanor about me. But in reality, that's just fake. Like that, That's not even Christian. That's not what the Bible is getting at in a situation like this. This is not grin and bear it, put a smile on your face. God is good. He's going to deliver one day. Okay, just don't, don't forget that just before this, my body trembles and my lips quiver. There's rottenness in my bones. There's fear there. Like, he's not walking. I mean, you wouldn't walk up to Habakkuk and go, man, that dude's happy. So there's a little bit of a difference here. Here's one of the more helpful explanations I've heard when it comes to this idea of rejoicing. Biblically speaking, it, it looks like treasuring, savoring, valuing, trusting something. It is a feeling, but it's not simply a feeling. And, and you see that here by, by taking note of what Habakkuk is rejoicing in. Okay? Remember, circumstances have not changed. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Who is his strength here? It's God, the Lord. God makes his feet steady, makes him tread on the high places like, like a deer. So Habakkuk is able to rejoice, but it, because he's come to a place to, where he's treasuring, valuing, savoring, trusting God. For Habakkuk, he's found something that's constant. He's found something that's unchanging. He's found something that's consistent. He's found something trustworthy. And because of that, his joy cannot be robbed. If you have something that is unchanging, consistent, constant, trustworthy, and your joy is there and your trust is there, it can't be taken away. G. G. Campbell Morgan said, our joy is in proportion to our trust. Our trust is in proportion to our knowledge of God. So this is what makes the biblically, the, the recollecting biblically part so key. Because if joy is proportional to trust and trust is proportional to knowledge, and again, biblically, when we talk about knowledge, there's an intimacy there, not just a head knowledge. So don't just go there. Well, if I know more facts about God, I'll be OK. No, it's if I know God more intimately. So joy tied to trust, trust tied to knowledge, then the right knowledge of God is key for increasing joy in God. So for Habakkuk, God didn't change the circumstances. He changed the man to meet the circumstances. That's a part of what it looks like to live by faith that he spells out in chapter two. The man, the person, you are changed to meet the circumstances. The circumstances aren't changed to meet you. He knew that he had something constant, unchanging, consistent and trustworthy. It's kind of like, you know, if if your house is built on a hillside and that hillside is not rock. OK, and you have seen in the past mudslides. Like you're going to come home and anytime it rains, you're going to be a little fearful of of what's going to happen to your house. But if you were there and that house was built and the foundation went on solid rock, just bedrock, like you walk into that house and you live in that house with a little more security. OK, 
Or if it's brick or stone or concrete, like you just feel a little more secure. Like I don't want to be in a trailer when a tornado comes. I feel a little better in, you know, an elementary school that was built in the 50s and it's solid poured blocks. So there's something more constant and changing there, unchanging there. All right. It's really about if you think about it like this, it's all about. Where your ultimate goals are, where does your trust lie? What's your aim in life? Uh, for instance, and you could put whatever you want in the blank. If your goal is, say, success, that's where the blank is. If your goal is success, then you will not rejoice in God if you are not successful. Okay, it's just that simple. But if your if your goal, if your aim ultimately is to know God. To glorify God, to see his purposes and his ways to, to see that manifest itself, to see basically to see God win. Basically, if your goals line up with God and they're founded in God, then you have something to rejoice in at all times because those things will come to fruition. He will not change. It will happen. It is secure and promised. Spurgeon would say that you can rejoice at all times if If you are founded in God, if your goals are in God, because you have put your joy where the enemy can't reach it. You have put your joy in a place that it cannot be robbed any longer. You know, it's it's interesting. I didn't I didn't know this. I was studying for the sermon. But Jonathan Edwards, of all people, like one of his first sermons in his career was on happiness. I just for some reason I can't picture that being the first sermon out of the gate. But. Edward says you can be happy because of three things that are true in Christ. And I think this ties in with everything we're looking at here, that you can have a lasting, sustaining happiness or joy in the Lord because three things are true in Christ. First, all our bad things will turn out for good. Second, all our good things can't be taken away. And third, all our best things have yet to come. Okay. Habakkuk can rejoice. We can rejoice. Any Christian can rejoice because all bad things will turn out for good. Nothing truly good can be taken away. And all the best is yet to come. If you think about this from a New Testament perspective, then then Christian joy is what we have regardless of circumstances because Because of Jesus, because of what he did, because he lives, because we belong to him, because he's making all things new, because he's coming back, because he promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Because we have houses built on rock and not on sand, to use an illustration from Jesus. Again, all of this goes back to, that's why I said that the recollecting biblically is kind of the glue that holds all of this uh, together. It's key. And, I, you know, when I first started the sermon, I usually uh, about Friday or Saturday, I, I, I look up and realize it's, it's we're doing the Lord's Supper this week. And so um, I, I can't think of a better way to end this book and this sermon, given what we just covered. Um, this is one of the most profound means for recollecting biblically if you think about it what has God given us in terms of a means of grace that is what else is specifically meant to cause us 
to recollect biblically what has been done for us. So I get, you know, joking with Nicole. It's like, I, was, I don't know how to end this thing. And it's like, uh, there's the Lord's Supper. The Lord said, I got an ending for you. Just land right here. Land on remembering. Remembering what? What I have done for you in Christ to reconcile you to myself. Let me go ahead and get those that are serving uh, to come up. And let's think about how this connects with this liturgy that we just walked through. Okay, if we are looking at we are going to get an opportunity for immediate application, immediate application. You do not have to leave this room to apply this. But when you leave this room, please apply this. But here's an avenue to pray, to recollect, to await and to rejoice all through this meal. So I know some. Of what some of you are walking through. I don't have a clue all of what all of you are walking through. So I I don't know where you are. Uh, Maybe things are generally good for you personally, but but maybe you're just not you're a little confused by events in the world and things that are going on. Maybe that's where you are. Praise the Lord that things are good for you personally right now. But if you look up and go, man, there's just a lot of chaos in the world and I'm wondering where God is. Well, Here's an opportunity, no matter what you're walking through, no matter what you're dealing with. Okay, here's an opportunity to follow the example of Habakkuk. So I'm going to pray and then we'll distribute these elements. But this is an opportunity for you to pray to God. Okay, as this is going out, be in prayer. God, revive, revive your work. Okay, you you've you've worked in the past of seeing what you've done in the gospel. Like just renew that in us. And beyond us, make it known, make it known. Okay, we know that wrath is coming one day, but remember mercy. There's a lot of people that need mercy. I need mercy. Remember that. Okay, recount the gospel. Remember Jesus in your place as as you get this. Okay, recollect biblically. Christ crushed for you. His broken body, his shed blood. So pray and recollect. And then take time to, in a sense, say to the Lord, I'm, I'm waiting on you. I don't understand how I do. From a big picture standpoint, know what's going on, but I don't understand all the details. And this hurts what I'm walking through. I'm just I'm going to wait on you as much as I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to rest in you. I'm going to just sort of settle into who you are. OK, so you go from praying to recollecting what Christ has done and then and then you just settle into who God is and say, I'm going to wait. And then you come out of the other side at the end and say, I just I rejoice. That I get to do this, that, that I can remember how faithful you are, that you've never been unfaithful. This meal's a demonstration that you've never been unfaithful. And so whatever I'm walking through, it has a purpose and you have a plan. It's going to come to an end either in this life or in the one to come. So I rejoice in you. Even amidst whatever disaster, whatever difficulty, whatever may come, I rejoice in you. So I'm just exhorting us all to leverage this opportunity. So we're going to distribute these. I'm going to pray for us as these are being distributed. Just walk through that process. Walk through that with the Lord and then I'll lead us uh, to partake. If, If you are here with us today... And you are not a follower of Christ. Uh, This meal is reserved 
for those who have put their trust in him, who have said, I have no hope apart from him. If that if that's not you, we're grateful that you're here. We'd love to talk with you more. uh, But we ask that you would please just let these elements pass and you observe a people who have been bought at a high price. So let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful that as we we look at a text that allows us to be reminded of your great acts in history. Your majesty and, and glory and power and judgment and mercy. We're grateful that you've brought us to the height of remembering your glory and your majesty and your wrath and your mercy at the cross. So help us now as we partake of this bread and this cup, which represents the the body and blood of our Savior. Help us to recollect well. To find our rest in you as we await the end of whatever, Father. Just for you to return and for it all to be set right and help us to rejoice that you have never been unfaithful. Lead us now, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.